Joseph D'Angelo is facing 13 homicide charges and 13 charges of kidnap with intent to rob in connection with the Golden State Killer crime spree. While law enforcement believes him to be responsible for the many rapes attributed to the East Area Rapist Spree, due to the statute of limitations, they cannot file rape charges. At the time of this recording, Joseph D'Angelo has not yet entered a plea and is awaiting trial. This case is why we lock our doors at night. Attacked all over California. The community was taken hostage. Brutal homicides. One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. campaign to help identify the Golden State Killer. With the identification and arrest of Joseph James D'Angelo as a suspected Golden State Killer, we've moved to the next phase of this story, which is the trial. Joseph D'Angelo is facing 13 homicide charges and 13 charges of kidnap with intent to rob. He's not yet entered a plea and is currently being held at the Sacramento County Main Jail awaiting trial. He last appeared in court on April 10th, where prosecutors from four California counties, including Sacramento County District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert, announced that they will seek the death penalty if Joseph D'Angelo is convicted. Not all of the counties have cases that are what we call death eligible, so Contra Costa does not have a homicide case. Tulare's case is not what we call death eligible because it, um, there's no special circumstance alleged. So it's the other counties, Orange County, Sacramento County, Santa Barbara County, in Ventura County that have the cases that involved that. And with the prosecution's death penalty announcement, it's expected that suspect Joseph James D'Angelo will quickly have additional counsel appointed to his case. The defendant has a right to what we call Keenan counsel, which means a secondary attorney to represent him. So as a matter of practice, we do that before the preliminary hearing. Deputy Public Defender Quizan Malouf from the San Francisco Public Defender's Office joins us to speak about Keenan Counsel, the death penalty, and the strategy that suspect Joseph D'Angelo's public defenders are likely to employ through his trial process. Mr. Malouf is not one of Joseph D'Angelo's public defenders, but his expertise in California criminal law may help us understand some of the complicated issues facing Mr. D'Angelo and his legal representation. Welcome, Mr. Malouf. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. So before we get into the specifics of this exact case, we wanted to ask you some questions regarding the legal process in California on cases of this magnitude. So I want to start at the beginning. Mr. D'Angelo was arrested in April of 2018. And as of this recording, he has not yet entered a plea, which is almost a year later. How long can one go before entering a plea? And why would a defendant want to wait And if he's, in fact, entered a plea at his next court date, you know, what will happen then? Well, those are good questions. You have a right to be arraigned and enter a plea within 48 hours from one's arrest, not including weekends and holidays. Okay. Once a plea is entered, certain speedy rights automatically kick in. And either you waive time, meaning you waive your right to a speedy trial, or you must have the preliminary hearing within 10 court days of your arraignment, and it must be completed within 60 calendar days. Wow. Sometimes uh, the defense is not ready for a hearing within the statutory time limits, and they don't want to just start off by waiving time, because once you waive that time, you never get it back. 
In this case, it's been a year, which is very rare uh, for a defendant not to enter a plea a year later. That simply means both the prosecution and the defense are agreeing to waive the arraignment or for him entering a plea because both sides have a right to a speedy trial. Got it. Now, if he does enter a plea at his next court date, then there are certain decisions that he needs to make. He needs to decide whether or not he wants to have the hearing within 10 days, or he can waive the 10-day rule and have the hearing within 60 days. That is what would happen if he enters a plea at his next court date. And then that would just be the preliminary hearing. Would That process would need to start then. Yes. In the preliminary hearing, the judge is looking just really at one or two things. One, was there a crime committed? And two, was it the defendant that committed a crime? And they're just looking at, was there a probable cause to arrest the defendant for these crimes? Can you just not enter a plea and then just keep this stretching out indefinitely? Or is there a certain point where the court or the prosecution could kind of force this to move on to the next stage? So the court can enter a plea for the defendant if the defendant refuses to enter a plea. And the court must enter a plea of not guilty when the defendant refuses to enter a plea. And that can, you know, some courts do it two weeks have gone by. Some courts do it one week has gone by. Some will allow a month to go by. In this case, like I said, it's very rare that a year would go by, but it it simply means that both sides are allowing this to happen. Got it. Because nothing can happen next, really, until a plea is entered. Correct. Nothing until a plea is entered. There's not much that can happen at all. Okay. You know, in the official complaint filed against him, he stands accused of 13 homicide charges, as well as 13 kidnap with intent to rob charges. Uh, Those are in lieu of the many rape charges that can't be filed due to the statute of limitations. But can you explain kidnap to rob? What action is required to meet that charge in California? Sure. There's a short answer and a long answer. Um, The short answer is kidnapping to rob includes kidnapping to rape, and the punishment is the same, which is life in prison. Um, I'll start with the kidnapping. Kidnapping is simply moving someone against their will, a substantial distance, meaning more than a slight or trivial distance. So that's the kidnapping aspect. But what's substantial distance? Is like from the bedroom to a living room, is that substantial? Every case could be quite different. Uh, It just means more than slight or trivial. So, you know, in some cases, a bedroom to a living room might be considered substantial. Other cases, it may not be considered substantial. In my opinion, I don't think a bedroom to a living room would be considered a substantial distance. Now, would the intent behind that move, in other words, if there was fear or intimidation involved, does that make it more than trivial or same thing? Well, the fear and intimidation goes to the robbery part. So the the kidnapping is just the longer answer. There are actually seven elements that must be met. And one of those elements being that the person was moved against their will using force or fear. So if that element is met, and like I said, there's seven elements, then you can get the kidnapping. As far as the robbery, as long as there's some type of property that was taken from the person using force or fear, then they reach the robbery element. So if they have the movement plus some type of property taken by the use of force and fear, they would get both the kidnapping and robbery, hence kidnap to rob. 
Perfect. And the reason they can charge those is that at the time of these crimes, the kidnap to rob had like a life sentence and therefore it didn't have a statute of limitations, correct? That is correct. Any any case that has either death, life, or life without the possibility of parole has no statute of limitations. D.A. Schubert had told us that kidnap to rape either didn't exist then or they couldn't um, or it did have a statute of limitation. So they, that's why they ended up doing kidnap to rob. It probably did not exist then. We're talking about the 1970s or 80s, depending upon which crime. Got it. That makes sense. So, so it was different. It was different back then. If it didn't exist, then you wouldn't be able to use that now. It depends when the crime was committed. Right, and that's the one thing about this case. They must go by the law that was written when the crime was committed. So I know there was one crime that was committed in 1975. They have to go back to the penal code and base it on the 1975 laws and other crimes. And that's going to make this case very difficult because there's such a large span that each year, each different decade that these crimes happen, there are different laws. And uh, that's going to make this case uh, long, interesting and difficult for both sides. So even for like the murder charge that happened, let's say, in December of 1979, that might fall under different rules and laws than the murder charge for the 1986. Absolutely. Including the punishment. I believe murder in 1979 had a seven year top other than death. So if you had the special circumstance, you could go for death. But if you don't have the special circumstance, then it's it would have been like whatever the punishment is for the murder charge. Yes, which I think was seven to life. So once he reaches seven years, he's now eligible for parole back then. So it's seven to life. Copy. Okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. So that makes sense. Yeah. And I think it's also important to understand because, you know, there's been, you know, over 40 rape accusations associated with this case, but there's only 13 kidnapped with intent to rob charges. And that might be due to not all victims were moved when, you know, they were raped. So Or not moved a substantial distance. So that might be a victim was moved from the bedroom to the living room or from the living room to the bedroom, not considered a substantial distance. Got it. Whereas, you know, we've heard of cases where the victim was moved outside, like in the backyard, that might have a better chance at meeting that burden of a substantial distance then. Very likely it would meet that burden. Okay, great. How interesting. Now, film and television have taught us people can't be compelled to testify against their spouses. Now, in this case, the suspect was married during the entire alleged spree. And while separated in 1991, they remained legally married. Uh, Mr. D'Angelo's wife has filed for divorce after the arrest. My question is, could she be asked to take the stand by either the prosecution or the defense? And what would she be allowed to testify to? So under Evidence Code Section 970 and 971 in California, there's something called the spousal privilege. And it's the testifying spouse that holds this privilege. And she cannot be forced to testify against her spouse. This privilege dies with a divorce. So if there is a divorce, there is no spousal privilege. However, Evidence Code Section 980, there's something called a marital communication privilege. Both parties to the marriage has the privilege of the marriage communication, and it survives divorce. This means a defendant can prevent a spouse from testifying about written or oral communication they had, but she can testify about what she saw or heard. She just can't talk about their communications. 
So once again, there's the spousal privilege, which she holds, not the defendant. So she can say, I don't want to testify, or she can say, I will testify. And then there's this marital communication, which the defendant and the spouse holds, and he can prevent her from testifying about what they talked about. But she can always talk about what she saw. But she holds the privilege of saying, spousal privilege, I don't want to talk. But when she files for divorce and the moment that divorce is final, she loses that privilege. That is correct, even though the marital communication privilege will still survive. And the marital communication privilege also exists with the defendant. So his defense attorneys can prevent her from speaking to their communications. That is correct. Okay. But so from a prosecution standpoint, they could put her on the stand if the divorce goes through to compel her to talk about, was he home this night? Where did he work? Where did you live? Those kinds of things. Yep. Yes. I guess the questions in that they can't ask is, did he ever tell you about so-and-so? Right. They can't ask any question about written or oral communication that they've had, only what she saw and, and what she observed. Great. Now, let me ask you, you know, the, the crime spree of the Golden State Killer, it spans six jurisdictions. And in what most people seem to believe is a historical precedent, all six district attorneys have teamed up and decided to pursue a joint prosecution in Sacramento. Have you seen a prosecution this large before? No, I haven't. This is definitely historically precedent. Normally, each jurisdiction will prosecute the crimes that happen in their jurisdiction. And then when they're done, they hand the defendant over to the next county for them to prosecute. And a perfect example was the night stalker that committed crimes both in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. San Francisco prosecuted him. And then when San Francisco was done, we turned him over to Los Angeles. And this is the Richard Ramirez case. He was the night stalker. So it's very rare. I've never seen or heard of six jurisdictions teaming together to prosecute a single case in a single county. Um, That is quite unprecedented, and that would make this a a very lengthy and difficult trial for, for both sides. So from your perspective, does it make it more efficient since we're now not having to do all that stuff six times, or is it actually inefficient? Like, What are you looking at? from your perspective? Well, that's an excellent question. I mean, I, I, we're not supposed to look at efficiency when it comes to prosecuting cases. That doesn't make the defendant having a fair trial. I mean, how, for example, you have a right to have jurors from your jurisdiction to judge you. And so when you're having crimes committed in Ventura County, Tulare County, in Sacramento County, and all these different counties, where are we going to get the jurors from? Hmm. And and so that makes it very difficult and likely it it might cause the defendant to win a motion for a new trial or on appeal um, if they don't do it correctly, if there is a conviction. Is it jurors from the jurisdiction that the crime was committed in or jurors from the defendant's jurisdiction? Because he's definitely planted roots in Sacramento. So it's where the crime was committed. That's that's how it's typically done. Typically, only San Francisco can prosecute San Francisco crimes. Uh, And L.A. can't prosecute San Francisco crimes. And that's why this is historically a precedent, because I've just never seen or heard of another county 
teaming together to prosecute crimes that happen outside their county. This is a first for me. So, I mean, it's not that Sacramento County District Attorney is necessarily prosecuting other counties' crimes, right? Because these other counties' district attorneys have sent ADAs to Sacramento. Um, I mean, like the prosecution table has, I don't know how many lawyers on there from those different counties, each specifically prosecuting their own crimes. Mm. Well, that's going to make this an interesting trial. Yeah, I've just never seen that before. I, I guess they could do that. It'd be long, for sure. On April 10th, the prosecution announced that they will seek the death penalty if Golden State Killer suspect Joseph James D'Angelo is convicted. We'll discuss what that means for the defense and how it might change the trial process moving forward. Okay, so on April 10th, 2019, four DAs with death penalty eligible murder charges against Mr. D'Angelo informed the court that if he's found guilty, they will seek the death penalty. How does it change the proceedings and, and change what has to happen next? Mainly that changes the trial. Um, as far as the proceedings, for the most part, the proceedings would be the same. There are different stages of trial. This First, there's the arraignment where the client enters a plea. Then there's a preliminary hearing. After the preliminary hearing, there are pretrial negotiations. And then there's the trial. And in the stages of trial, you know, first there's the motions in limine. A motion in limine is a motion filed by either party to ask the court for an order or a ruling limiting or preventing certain evidence from being presented by the other side. After the motions in limine, there's a jury selection. And in a case like this, it's very likely that both parties will submit jury questionnaires even before ever seeing the jury to make sure they can have a fair trial. Mm-hmm. After the jury questionnaires, there's the jury selection itself, which could take weeks. And then there's the opening statements. The government gives their opening statement first. And if the defense chooses, they can also give a, an opening statement. Next is the production of evidence uh, from the prosecution. And then there's the production of evidence from the defense. Then the prosecution can put on a rebuttal case if they want. And then their closing arguments. And that's the guilt phase of the trial. If the jury comes back guilty, then they start in with the punishment phase. And that's really the difference between the death penalty cases and non-death penalty is that extra punishment phase really another whole new trial begins uh, regarding the punishment, whether or not he should get death or not. So that's interesting. So the, the death penalty phase, whether or not that happens, shouldn't have any effect on the proceedings of the actual guilt phase. Correct. Yes. Okay. So I was told, and again, I might be wrong on this, but that in California, if the prosecution intends to seek the death penalty, that even during the guilt portion of the, the trial, that you cannot use deposition video as as witness testimony, that, that witnesses have to testify in person. And this would only come into play, like, if, say, someone is sick or dying. And, you know, as this is an older case, some of these witnesses are much older. Is that true? Does that hold water? Or did I get that wrong? Well, first of all, in criminal cases, there are no depositions. It's called uh, either preliminary hearings or conditional exams. Okay. A conditional exam is normally allowed if the testifying witness meets certain elements, 
like being sick or elderly or not likely to be available the time the trial starts. Uh, in order to have a conditional exam, the defense must have an opportunity to fully cross-examine the witnesses. These conditional exams are typically video recorded and can be used at trial if the witness becomes unavailable. I have not heard in, you know, San Francisco hasn't done a death penalty case in about 30 years, but I have not heard where conditional exams that are videotaped are not allowed in death penalty cases. So in in this case, for example, you know, these conditional exams, as long as the defense has a chance to cross-examine them, from what we're understanding, it should be allowed in court. That is correct. A chance to fully cross-examine the witnesses, then it could be allowed in court if the witness becomes unavailable. If they're still available, then they need to testify in person. There's one follow-up question. So if you're the prosecution at this point and, and you, you really want this witness and you know, look, if this trial lasts two years, they might not, they might be too sick by then. Can you now or does it have to be in the preliminary phase or at what point can you do these? Um... The conditional exam. You can do the conditional exam even before the preliminary hearing. Okay. Uh, it can actually happen anytime. It can happen before the preliminary hearing. It can happen after the preliminary hearing. Um, it can happen at, at any stage of the trial. And is that a request the prosecution needs to make to the court and then the court makes the defense do that? Or how do, you, how do you get the defense to cooperate, I guess? So the prosecution would submit a motion to the court asking for a conditional exam. The defense has a right to object if they don't meet certain elements. Let's say they're, you know, maybe a 20-year-old person who lives in Sacramento County, not likely to uh, be sick or die before the trial starts, then the motion for conditional exam will probably be denied. However, if it's, you know, you know, 70-year-old person or 80-year-old person or a person who uh, is sick and not likely to survive by the time the trial starts, then the court will likely grant a conditional exam. Right. Got it. Now, with the prosecutors seeking a death penalty, can you speak to uh, Keenan counsel and what that might mean for the defendant? Sure. Keenan counsel means the defendant has a right to have two attorneys to represent him. Normally, they split up the duties. One attorney is strictly for the guilt phase, while the other attorney is for the punishment phase. But both attorneys are there starting from day one, and and Keenan counsel only kicks in. Well, I should say the second counsel will kick in if there is a guilt phase. But the Keenan counsel can do, you know, he doesn't have to just wait till the penalty phase to kick in, even though normally that's what happens. Now that this, you know, intention to seek a death penalty has been announced by the prosecutors, would then that Keenan counsel's second attorney start right away that now that we know that might happen? Or would they wait till like preliminary hearing or further down the line? Strongly advisable to start right away. That second attorney, if they're going to focus on the penalty phase, they need to talk to witnesses. They need to talk to family members of the defendant. They need to create a and humanize him again. That's what they need to do. 
and find out mitigating circumstances, they normally need to start、uh, sooner rather than later. Now, Mr. D'Angelo was found indigent by the court, right? So he has the public defender free of charge for him.、Um, so would this Keenan counsel also be covered under that? Is the public defender's office hiring this person, or really, who appoints Keenan counsel? Normally, the public defender can hire outside. So the public defender that is actually defending、uh, the defendant can hire. From outside the office, or they can have someone inside the office help as Keenan counsel. Normally, they hire someone from outside. Oh no, sorry. So it's still up to them at that point. Yes, it's still up to them. Okay, so now let's talk about California Governor Gavin Newsom, who recently announced a moratorium on capital punishment and his stated intent to grant reprieves to death row inmates. Your thoughts on seeking the death penalty now that the governor has essentially taken the power behind it away? Gavin Newsom's order does not prohibit the government from seeking death. It just means as long as Governor Newsom is in office, there'd be no killing of inmates. But appeals take many, many, many years, and if there is a conviction, by the time the defendant runs out of appeals, there may be a new governor, and that new governor may reinstate the death penalty. So just because Gavin Newsom has this moratorium. Prohibiting death now does not mean in the future death would be reinstated. Right. So he didn't change the law, quote unquote. He's pretty much saying, while I'm in office, I can put a stop to it. That is correct. The law remains the same. It's just he's saying, while he's in office, it's not happening. Okay. Or when I say it's not happening, they still can seek death. They just can't put anyone to death. The execution part is not happening. Correct. Now, but if you are、uh, sentenced to death during a moratorium, you would still get the death penalty later if the moratorium was lifted, or does it depend on if the moratorium is, is at the time of the trial? Well, that's an excellent question, and I, I don't know the answer to that. I believe that if there's a new governor and a new governor reinstates the death penalty, I believe because it's not a law. I mean, if there was a law, then. The, and the death penalty is no longer legal; they can't reinstate it on someone. But because it's not a law, I believe that the next governor can reinstate the death penalty. And if someone today is found guilty and sentenced to death, they can actually be executed. Boy, what a complicated case! It is. There are many things that make this case complicated: the jurisdictions, the age. Believe it or not, the DNA makes it very complicated. In what way? <laughs> Because the DNA so, I mean, to us layman people seems like well that seems like a slam dunk, right? And, and that is absolutely not the case at all. There's all kinds of different challenges when it comes to DNA. You can challenge the collection of DNA. Some of these cases happen, you know, in the 70s, where the collection is definitely not appropriate in today's standard. There's the storage of the DNA. The way they stored it in the 70s and 80s is definitely not the way it's stored now. So there's there's still quite a bit that you can challenge when it comes to the DNA. I have a question on that. If the prosecution is limited by you must follow the rules and the laws at the time of the crime, I mean, can we really then say, but you have to have the collection requirements of today? Absolutely. So. When it comes to the laws, you know, there's the penal code, and that is based on when the crime happens. But if we find now that 
in the 1970s, no one used gloves and there's mixed DNA. I mean, it, it makes things quite complicated. The standard for a scientific collection for today applies even in the 70s. So if you screw it up... Even if the science wasn't around then? Yes, even if the science wow. was not wow. around. That, that is the first time we've heard that, and that is, that is a shocking revelation, honestly. I think a lot of people will be very surprised to hear that, because like Joe said, laymen's assume, oh, it's a slam dunk. Uh, it doesn't sound like that's the case at all. No, I would, I would not call... You know, I have not seen the DNA in this case. I, I don't know if it's touched DNA. I don't know if it's, it's semen. semen DNA. It's semen. I, I don't know what type of DNA we're talking about. But just because there's DNA does not mean it's a slam dunk case at all. Okay. Well, since we're kind of going into this anyway, let's let's just get cut straight to the speculation part. And I'm I'm glad you're here since you come from the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, and obviously he's being tried in Sacramento. But so this case is over 40 years old, 26 charges spanning six jurisdictions. And again, there is that DNA, which law enforcement says is a 100% match. And it comes from different jurisdictions, different labs, different investigators over almost a decade of time, semen that's 100% matched to the defense. You know, it'd be very strange that his semen would have been placed by different people in different jurisdictions. Like, it does kind of sound like a slam dunk case, but you're saying not so much. I would never call anything a slam dunk case, and I would never call anything an unwinnable case. I think it's called, um, for the defense, a difficult case or a challenging case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and clearly, this appears to be a difficult and challenging case for the defense. And it looks like it's also a difficult case for the prosecution to pull all these resources together all in one courtroom. So it's definitely a challenging case, um, but I would not, I would never consider it a slam dunk case. I think that's when mistakes happen when people say this is a slam dunk case. Now, the last we've heard, there's already over 30,000 plus documents of discovery. So I just have to ask, since you're in the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, you know, what are the Sacramento public defenders dealing with? Like, how would you defend Mr. D'Angelo? How do you even tackle a case like this as a public defender? Wow. So that's better asked to the attorney who actually has all this evidence. But you would first challenge the DNA. That's probably the first thing you would start doing. As far as your defense, it's, it's the reasonable doubt standard. The government must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he committed each and every charge that he's charged with. And you would fight that reasonable doubt standard even with the DNA being present. But like I said, I think the first challenge is challenging the DNA and seeing exactly, you know, I I heard that there's semen. It would be pretty difficult to explain why your semen is in a rape victim's presence. That would be pretty hard to explain. But going back to your, your earlier point, so I guess what their approach would be is saying, well, it was collected incorrectly. So we're not even positing, oh, the police plant this somehow. We're saying it wasn't collected properly and you have to do that on a case-by-case basis then, right? That is right. Yes, that is correct. Coming up, San Francisco Deputy Public Defender Malouf explains the special resources that are available to defendants in death penalty cases and clarifies how witness testimony might work now that this has become a capital case. Okay, from the 
perspective of the public defender, how does the process work? How do you get cases assigned? I'm, I'm assuming that Mr. D'Angelo is arrested. The public defender's office is notified. And then it's like the next one up takes the case. Like, how do you all of a sudden end up with one of the most historic cases in California on your docket? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And, and it really depends what type of case it is. A case like this it is definitely not next in line. <laughs> that is not the way it goes. Um, so in a case like this, normally we would get the complaint. The managing attorneys will get the complaint. We will put the case over normally for two days simply for a special assignment. And within those two days, the homicide division of the public defender's office will meet. They'll discuss who in the homicide division can handle this type of case. Once a decision is made, then that attorney is approached and asked, do you want this case? Which is, the answer is almost always yes. And then once that attorney goes to court the next day or so, then they get the case and, and it's assigned to that attorney officially from that point on. But that's not how typical cases are assigned. But in cases like this, that's how they're assigned. Now, I mean, with a case of this magnitude, I'm assuming that it's more than just one public defender, right? I mean, we, we've seen even just in the courtroom footage that there's at least two regular faces there. But does the public defender's office have the resources to kind of assign a team on this? Because I can't imagine one person having to carry this burden. Well, in death penalty cases, there's something called 987 funds. 987 funds are funds by the state of California that are used specifically to help defend people who are charged with death penalty cases. With these 987 funds, the public defender can hire Keenan counsel, outside counsel. They can hire paralegals outside their office. They can hire investigators outside their office. They can hire clerks outside the office. Normally, when I have a case that's eligible for 987 funds, I have a team of at least three to four different individuals that come to court with me, including an attorney. Wow, that's really interesting. So really, when you, when you think about it from the public defender's office, in some ways, when they do seek a death penalty, it almost, it, it almost helps in a way. It gives you more resources to prove your client's innocence. Well, it definitely gives us more resources, and we don't have to use the resources in our office. So our budget, you know, you can wipe out our entire budget on a case of this magnitude. Sure. And we have nothing left to defend the thousands of other clients we have. And that's why the 987 funds are so important, because we don't have to touch our budget except for the attorney's salaries. But the paralegal salaries, the investigator salaries – our experts, witnesses, uh, fees, all that comes out of a separate account, which is the 987 funds account. Now, on a case like this, what are the possibilities of a plea? I mean, as a defense attorney, do you, you know, I mean, you, those are a lot of charges. You're looking at, you know, um, at least life in prison, if not possible, the death penalty. Is there, is there a reason when you have a client who is, you know, up there in age, 73 years old, it's going to be a long trial. Is there a reason to plea? Is there a benefit to pleading from a defense standpoint? There could be a benefit to plea. Well, I mean, let's let's back up. We're, we're assuming that he's guilty by saying this, because if, if you're innocent, then you should fight the case 100% all the way. 100%. Yeah. If the defendant, you know, 
is guilty of some or all of these charges and wants to enter a plea, he can. Maybe he doesn't want to go through the embarrassment of having a very lengthy trial, and this will be a very lengthy trial, and expose all his bad deeds to you know, thousands, maybe even millions of people across the United States. Right. And and especially, you know, I mean, he does have children that, you know, came mostly after the crime spree ended. So if there is a sense of, you know, wanting to prevent that embarrassment, then that could be something. I guess my question is also mainly just let's just talk basics like housing. Like he's being housed in the Sacramento County Jail right now. How is that comparatively to you know, let's say he would plead guilty and get moved to a prison. Is there a benefit to staying in the jail? Are, are the conditions better there? Are they better in the prisons? Like, is there a kind of quality of life thing for him at this point at 73 years old? Well, that depends who you ask. You have certain rights in prison that you don't have in county jail. For example, you get conjugal visits in prison. You don't get conjugal visits in the county jail. Uh, you get the smoke in prison. You don't get the smoke in a county jail. There's certain activities that you can participate in prison that you don't get to participate in in county jail. I'm not saying prison is a good place. Prison is a horrible place and it should be avoided at, you know, except for the very, very violent people. With that being said, you know, if he was convicted everybody goes to San Quentin first. No matter where you are in the state of California, if you go to prison, you first go to San Quentin. It's like the receiving home. And then from San Quentin, you get moved off to different prisons. This being a death penalty case, if he were convicted, he would remain at San Quentin, uh, which is a very dangerous place to be. So it it makes sense to probably stick it out in the Sacramento County Jail then. There's another question that a lot of people have, which is, let's say, you know, he he pleads not guilty and we, we start this long, lengthy process of a trial. What if he dies before there is a conviction, before a jury comes back with a verdict? Is he then technically not guilty? I mean, does how how does that work? Well, you know, if you die in jail, you die in jail. You know, I, I don't see the strategy here being he he would die as an innocent person. I, I think the strategy here is to have a fair trial, and, and that's what the defense is trying to do. Um, I don't think anyone would say, oh, because you died in jail without a conviction, therefore you're innocent, especially if you talk to the people who are innocent or their family members, and they did die in jail before their trial came, they see that as a horrible thing. They died right. in jail, and they would see it as he died guilty right. because he was in jail. So I, I don't really connect the dots when I hear if he dies in jail before their conviction, does he legally mean he's an innocent person? Sure, legally it could mean that, but again, he still dies in jail. And just to expand on that just a tiny bit, would they ever go for a posthumous uh, conviction? Is there precedent in a case like this? So that's happened. They could. It's a huge waste of resources. I don't see what benefit any jurisdiction would get from doing that unless the defendant has millions of dollars that they can pay in restitution and in order to tap into those resources they need to get this conviction, you know, then they can proceed the trial even through death. But otherwise, it's such a great 
waste of resources, I think the public defender will have a very good argument in not going forward and dismissing the case. Right. Now, I have another question. You know, a lot of times with these big high profile cases, you have high profile celebrity defense attorneys stepping up and stepping in and kind of taking it on. We haven't seen that in this case. Your thoughts on that? This defendant was a police officer for two different jurisdictions. And I assume that he's met public defenders. And he knows that public defenders are the attorneys that are in court every day. They know the players. They know what a good deal is. They know how to try a case. They've tried hundreds of cases. And he's probably smart enough to realize that a public defender is the best representation that money just cannot buy. So that's one one thing. He's probably sticking with his public defenders because he realizes he has a good a, attorney. The second thing is once you have an attorney, you cannot be solicited by other uh, attorneys. Attorneys can't just walk into the jails and hand out their business cards to people who are represented by counsel and say, hire me. That would be illegal. So either the defendant would have to seek out these people or he would be stuck with his public defender. Is there anything else that, that, you know, as you're observing this from the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, you know, things that you guys are talking about around the water cooler of like, wow, this is interesting, or this is how we would handle this, or there's some insights that you can share with us? You know, um, we have so many difficult cases here in San Francisco. <laughs> I think most of our attorneys are focused on their own case. Um, sure, this case is quite fascinating. This case is definitely out of the ordinary. This is definitely a historical proceeding, the way the way they are proceeding it. So there are people talking, but usually it's just, you know, a 30-second a conversation. And then, oh, by the way, here's my case that I'm worried about. I got a trial tomorrow. Let's talk about that. I, I think most people are focusing on their own cases here in San Francisco. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. It, makes, it makes sense. Yeah. I bet your clients yeah. are happy with that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Awesome. Great. Well, listen, Quizan, again, thank you. This was an extremely enlightening chat. Uh, you know, we're going to keep an eye on the future and see what surprises await us in this courtroom. That's for sure. So thank you again so much for being here. Thank you. Hey, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'd love to look forward to chatting with you guys again. Sounds good. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kazan. Coming up next week, Unmasking a Killer supervising producer Todd Lindsay returns for a final wrap-up to our investigation and documentation of this incredible case to date. We go over what we had right and what we missed when it came to theories regarding the identification of the Golden State Killer, who law enforcement now believes to be Joseph James D'Angelo. And for more on the Golden State Killer case, the complete Unmasking a Killer documentary series is available on demand at CNN Go. And you can find the Unmasking a Killer podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Joke Finsoon. And I'm Biagio Messina. Thanks for listening.